you're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm talking with Tariq Fancy. Until 2019, Tariq was Chief Investment Officer for BlackRock's Sustainable Investments. Earlier this year, he revealed the reason for his departure was a disillusionment with the impact of sustainable finance. He now runs a North America-based online education charity, Rumi, which is very active at the moment in helping girls and women with the situation in Afghanistan. Tariq, it's great speaking with you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I wonder, for people that don't know, if you could just give us a brief uh, bio of, of your experience in the investment world and, and elsewhere. It's so great to be here. And a quick note on my background. I, I started out as an investment banker for a few years, uh, covering the tech sector in Silicon Valley, actually, then spent a long career as an investor. Uh, mainly based out of New York, doing a lot of distress and special situations, investing in a private equity firm, later built strategies and did a few other things. And then in 2013, left to create Rumi, which is a, um, a 501c3 or a charity that uses digital digital technology to, to advance access to learning for some of the world's poorest communities. Uh, and then came back to the finance industry in 2018 and 2019, where in some sense I was convert, uh, convert sort of merging the two of, of investing in financial bottom lines and then social bottom lines, uh, in a sense, or at least trying to, um, as BlackRock's chief investment chief investment officer for sustainable investing. And uh, since late end of 2019, I've been turned my focus back to running Rumi. Okay, that's love lovely snappy bio. Can I ask you, why did you uh, leave the um, lucrative world of private equity in the first instance to uh, go and run a charity? Honestly, it was a personal decision. It was after the passing of my um, business school roommate and, and very close friend. Uh, and he and I sort of shared this passion for someday doing something, you know, taking our skills that we had learned in finance and doing something that we thought, you know, we, we really cared about and was making a, a bigger difference in the world. Uh, and uh, he, he contracted stage four cancer. And at some point it was, he wasn't, he, he couldn't keep kicking the can down the road. And so while he was fighting stage four melanoma, he actually created an education charity in Kenya, uh, which is where my parents grew up. My family immigrated from Kenya. Um, and, uh, and that sort of inspired me then to take the idea I had for Rumi and just go for it. Fantastic. And did you find your previous finance experience useful in setting that charity up? And how's it, how's it going? So it was useful, actually, very useful in the sense that, um, you know, there's a there's a there's a lot of things I didn't know around education, international development and so on. But I did know technology well. And I think that the finance background actually helped me understand, um, you know, really how to build something in a careful way and be kind of ruthless about execution. So, uh, and it has been going well. We're doing work right now for digital learning for girls and women in Afghanistan that we started in 2017, actually, and that um, is uh, extremely important right now, given the given the situation on the ground and the sudden sudden restrictions on access for girls to learn there. Um, given that 80% of Afghans have access to a mobile phone, which wasn't the case 20 years ago when the Taliban were last in charge, it does provide sort of a connection. To allow them to continue learning. So you've had to pivot quite quickly, given what's happened over over the summer. How, how have things changed? Are you are you managing to reach people? We are. We are managing to reach them largely because through a mobile phone you can learn safely from anywhere. Um, and we're working with a mobile operator in the country, and so there's a there's sort of an infrastructure is built to reach people safely at any time and anywhere that simply didn't exist 20 years ago. And so the the power of mobile technology when that infrastructure is built out is extraordinary. And, you know, in most places in the world, you know, Facebook and, and other applications are aggressively growing. 
Uh, and our goal is that people should be, you know, using, uh, availing themselves of free learning at the same time using that, that technology. And, and all the work we're doing is in local languages in, in Dari and Pashto, and has seen extraordinary uptake on the ground, just given the needs. Uh, it's working really well. So the goal right now is to quickly expand the content and subject areas and the distribution so we can meet the needs of suddenly 38 million Afghans whose lives have been turned upside down. And in particular, the women who will bear the brunt of it. So how do you how do you finance it? How can I make a donation? Where, where do we go? So you'd go to about.rumi.org. Rumi is R-U-M-I-E. And if you go to about.rumi.org, it talks about uh, some of what we do. We'll be adding a lot more information on Afghanistan specifically in the next few weeks as we grow this uh, in response to the crisis. But um, if you go to uh, the site about.rumi.org, it gives a lot more information on what we do and and how we've been doing it for a number of years now. Great. Well, well the best of luck with that. That sounds like a, a really wonderful initiative. I suppose the, the reason that I came across you, um, though, was when you took a break from the charity, if you can call it that, and you joined um, BlackRock, as, it's, as you say, as its CIO of its sustainable investing um, business. And you left there in um, mid-2019 um, because my understanding is you didn't necessarily agree that sustainable investment as a concept was necessarily doing what it says on the tin. Um, and I'm interested in that. I'm interested to know to what extent does it not um, do what it promises? Is it kind of, is it ineffective? Is it counterproductive? Or is it not as effective as you hoped? And and why? I came to the conclusion after 14 to 15 months there that it was ineffective. Uh, and it, 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 you know, it was um, in a sense harmless because it, it wasn't doing much good, but um, certainly not what people thought it was, but it wasn't harmful. The conclusion that it's harmful is something that I reached after leaving and, and recently went public to make the argument around. And the idea being that if you have something that people believe is creating impact, and it's based on a set of notions that I would argue are sort of based almost on fantasy, the, a convenient fantasy that we can sort of win, win, sort of, you know, make lots of money investing and fight climate change at the same time. Uh, if it doesn't work, um, what I realized was that I knew that when I had left because I had the vantage point of being a trained investor who looked at integrating environmental and social considerations, uh, you know, ESG broadly, but E and the S in particular is where people are focused um, across the largest pool of assets available in the world in, in capitalism today. And so I realized that if if I knew that it wasn't having any effect, but the rest of the world didn't know that, then there's an argument to be made that it's uh, actually actively delaying us um, because the fantasy might take a few years to work itself out. And so while I was away, I worked on um, a study with the university and we actually found that the more you feed people ideas around, you know, stakeholder capitalism is the answer to reference the business roundtables argument on, you know, how we improve social outcomes, that, you know, ESG is, is good for investing, that Wall Street's focus on climate risks, a whole bunch of things that in practice I found had no real impact. Um, the more that they believe it and the more that they then, the people who see headlines like that and hear that information are then less likely to argue that we need government regulation to address these problems, for example, a carbon tax. And those are exactly the reforms that all of the experts in society, including Nobel Prize winning economists have been telling us we need for decades. And that, and that really is where I think sustainable investing now has turned the corner and it's actually potentially harmful uh, in that it's wasting valuable time. By some measures, about a fifth of all the assets under management are managed in some respect with, with reference to ESG principles. And so if what you're saying is correct, then what we're looking at is a colossal 
could you call it a misallocation of resources or at least an allocation of resources that aren't being allocated in the way that most people think they are it, this isn't a small thing this is a this is a huge thing i would agree it's an absolutely huge thing because in many ways I, i'd say that this there I wouldn't throw ESG out entirely because I think a lot of people will say, well, how, first of all, they'll be surprised at the fact that ESG could be harmful to environmental and social considerations, given that the, the whole idea of why we're in theory doing it is largely that it's supposed to be beneficial. Um, so that's one, one bit that'll surprise people. But I, I, would, I would say that it's not so much everything in ESG is, is useless and needs to be thrown out. Uh, it's that you have, I think, tools, standards, data, and people, frankly, human capital that have come in around ESG that are all helpful. Um, unfortunately, they're being combined into narratives and products that are harmful. And I, I say those separately. There's narratives around it that I think are very dangerous and mislead the public. And there are a set of products that are being built off those narratives that um, generally imply that they're creating real-world impact that they don't create. Um, and there's no reason to believe that they do create. And that is also very harmful uh, because on one level, it's obviously, you would argue it's unethical to sell someone a product if they believe it's doing something in the world that it, it, it isn't doing, just as an attempt to sort of get higher fees out of it, um, which I think is, is quite widespread across the industry. But I think secondly, you know, if the narratives around it are based around the idea that you can buy an ESG product and make money and fight climate change at the same time, what we really need to do is step back and look at what we're actually saying. The mechanism for change through which buying an ESG fund or doing ESG integration or any of these things create real world social value is based on an idea that the markets will self-correct. I mean, that, that is ultimately at the end of the day what it is. I found that out because I spent enough time trying to understand how to articulate just not, not just how it's good for investing, which was it took a bunch of time to figure out because frankly, a lot of what was being said in the space was quite, it, it, it wasn't greenwashing, but it's what what um, someone else I know uh, called green wishing, right? It was so unlikely and hopeful that it was, you know, borderline greenwashing. But I think at some at some point, you know, these narratives they're all based on the free market correcting themselves. They they don't work in practice. I can talk in detail for the about the fact that I think that there are solutions we can implement, but the ones that are being done in the industry aren't it. And so what you end up seeing is that there's great there's great hope around ESG is going to do something. Right, um, and every year you see more and more talk about ESG. Right, it's incessant. Everyone claims to be doing it, and thinks it's the big thing. Uh, you have this growth in ESG assets. Right, so you, you can almost graph them. What I call sort of sustainable, and all the words are increasing. They're increasing alongside ESG assets, and then funnily enough, they're those are both increasing on a graph alongside carbon emissions and inequality, and all the things that they're arguably meant to do something about. And the reality is, is because you know, when you dig underneath these narratives and you dig underneath the, what the products are, they don't seem to have much of an effect at all. I mean, for the most part, there's a fraction of fraction of cases where some of the, there's a kernel of truth, but for the most part, it's mainly marketing. Uh, and that's really where the, the concern comes in for me. So and to give you an analogy of used places, when I first left BlackRock, um, you know, I left, I transitioned out over six months and did it on good terms. And I still don't, you know, I, I talk to folks at BlackRock and I'll tell you, I don't think it's a BlackRock specific a problem. I think it's an industry problem. Um, although BlackRock is, of course, the biggest player and has been, a, you know, at the senior management level, has been a big, big, big voice around it. But um, I, I think that, you know, what I thought of them when I was leaving was um, that it was like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. You know, the, the cancer is, I would argue, not just 
climate change, which is slowly spreading, but also I would say inequality and other social issues that undermine um, not the planet, but our political systems. Um, and so it was like giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient because it's very well marketed. It looks and sounds nice. It's green. But of course, you know, there's no reason to believe it's going to stop the spread of cancer, nor any experts who have told us that that would be the case or should be the case. Um, and I think where I landed after and, and why I went public this year about it was that I started to realize that it was almost undeniable in my mind that the rest of the world didn't know the extent to which most of this is just marketing. Uh, I would argue marketing intended um, or certainly designed, whether you know intentionally and cynically or not, to preserve the status quo. And what that means is that it's not just giving wheatgrass to a cancer patient. The, the data and the study that I'd done with this Canadian university showed that it was actually misleading the public. And it was like giving the giving cancer to, you know, wheatgrass to a cancer patient and then realizing very definitively that that cancer patient is, is now delaying chemotherapy mm. because of the sort of frankly false promises. And that, and that, that is, I think, the biggest concern that I would have is that it, it's now becoming counterproductive. Yeah, I think if you conclude that it's not doing any good, I think you have to then conclude that it's doing harm because we've only got so much attention and we've only got so many resources. There's only so many things we can do. And if we're, we're doing something that's not helping, then it's it's part of the problem. It's not part of the solution. So I can I can see how you got there. I suppose in terms of moving forward, I'd quite like to understand why why the problem is persisting and why people are continuing to um, promote the the concept. Um, now, maybe there's cynicism there, um, but but maybe they're just mistaken. I mean, the investment industry is full of smart people, and your your criticism of it in your in your series of essays on Medium, um, they're very good, um, but not not particularly difficult to understand. So, why aren't people getting it? Why aren't people becoming a little bit more skeptical and thinking, well, maybe this isn't working? You're asking the right question. I, I think that is starting to happen now. There's no question that based on certainly the inbound and the response I've gotten that I've sparked a debate, which which was my goal. I think that there's a debate that we desperately need to have sooner than later that's in the public interest. And I don't want a debate that has a bunch of people saying capitalism is crap and throwing stones at it. And, you know, uh, which, which I, I, it's important to understand the majority of millennials do not believe in capitalism, right? There's studies around this. I would argue it's because the version of, I, I would, first of all, I, I don't share the baby boomer perspective, I sit in between those two generations from an age perspective. I wouldn't say that the baby boomer generation is correct in blaming millennials and saying, oh, they don't just get it, which is the sort of version I've heard a lot. I would turn around and point the figure right back at them and say, no, listen, the reason that they don't believe in capitalism is because they're, they're seeing a poor version of it that's not serving the long-term public interest. And you know, maybe I'm old school, but I think business and markets exist to serve the public interest rather than the other way around. And so I think that what's happening now um, is, to answer your question, is that you know people are starting to ask these questions. I don't think they've been asked because the incentives of the system are operating exactly as we should expect them to. So one of the things I discuss in the essay is that I don't actually think that you can put it at the doorstep of any individual person and say, this person is bad or evil. I think that a system... Uh, works according to how we should we should think it should work according to the incentives of the people. Right now, for the most part, the average CEO is very short-term incentivized, as well as the average investment manager. So they are, uh, the average CEO pay is 320 times the industry worker. That's the highest it's been in decades. The average CEO tenure is five years. That's the shortest it's been in decades. And so very clearly, you know, capitalism from the perspective of not just 
managers um, who are, you know, who are folk who are incentivized towards profit, also fund managers, they're, they're very short term oriented. And it's important to note that they also are legally obligated to choose to chase profits, right? It's not like they're, there's a sort of caricature of the CEO as being sort of this magnanimous individual who has in their ability the you know, the, the, the controls to do all the right things and save society if they want. I actually think that's unfair even to the average CEO or fund manager. I mean, having been a portfolio manager myself once, I know that, you know, you're bound by obligations around fiduciary duty, right? You're focused on dollar value, right? Not, not social values. Um, and you're also financially incentivized around return. And so the idea that the industry has pushed is that, well, ESG integration is a win-win. Why? Because ESG is good for investing, so we are going to do more of it. And a, that's not you know out of the bounds of fiduciary duty, because again, it's not it's not the old school what people used to think, which is that it's going to cost you money to do good. Somehow, this new thesis has been weaved. And no, 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 it's it's good for investing. So, therefore, number one, it's fully compatible with fiduciary duty. Number two, you don't need to worry. The industry is going to do it all by themselves because it's 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 good. And why wouldn't we do it, right? Like you know, you can trust us because we we're profit seeking and there's profit there. And I think that the the, the central part of the debate that needs to be uh, addressed is the idea that um, that that is frankly not true, right? ESG being better for investment returns is financial jargon proxy for, uh, you know, profit. Responsible companies are more profitable. The fundamental problem that in our society that we all kind of know intuitively, and certainly I saw across the data of the largest asset manager in history, is that um, our our fundamental issue is that. There's a lot of things that are being done in society today that are not good for the public interest, but they're being done because they're profitable, right? Burning fossil fuels today is cheaper than it needs to be for us to make the transition that we need to make. And so for decades, as in using this one as an example, people have said, we need a price on carbon, right? I mean, that's pretty simply the answer. Like you, you have to tax the pollution, otherwise there's no disincentive to do it as much. And in response, we're not getting a carbon tax and we're getting a bunch of anecdotal stories about, you know, green is growing and this and that. And, you know, that's, it sound good, but once you dig below the anecdotes, the numbers are clear that we're not moving as fast as we need to move. And, and I think that fundamentally the, the ESG thesis itself is flawed. and seems designed more to, for the system to optimize delaying taxes and regulation, and then selling a bunch of high fee products in between to, to address social angst than it is to actually solve these problems. And sorry for the very long answer, but the fundamental point I'd say at the end of the day is in a short-term oriented system, um, you need regulation to solve these problems because if you just leave it to the market to be correct, it will not work. So the solution you've already alluded to is very simple to say, which is a globe, a carbon tax. Um, taxes are tend to be national. Um, surely it only makes sense if it's international, if not global. Um, I mean... How do we move forward there? If that is the solution, do you see, um, you know, do you think this is feasible? I think it is, but I think it's feasible only if we bring the debate to the U.S. So I'm a Canadian. I grew up in Toronto, went to university in the U.S. and then spent most of my working career here. I'm, I'm physically in, in New York at this minute. Um, and I, I will tell you that the Canadian side, there's not much we can get done alone, right? There was just an election in Canada. Climate change comes up a lot. There's obviously challenges because of the west of the country has um, the oil sands region. It's politically tricky to, to, to figure out a national approach. And you could argue that's the same for all countries. They have internal challenges around it. And then a lot of them look and say, well, what does it matter if no one else is doing it? 
And I, and I personally think that the United States, there, there is a way to get a global approach, but it has to begin in the U.S. Because if the U.S., like this decade still has a position of leadership that people may argue won't exist decades from now, but I do think in the 2020s, it's true that the U.S. has a unique position to lead, as well as, frankly, today, an administration that believes in science, which, you know, we, we take for granted. But, you know, a year ago, the president told people to drink bleach in the face of a hundred year you know, the biggest crisis in 100 years. And so you know, we do have a moment in history for the next few years where the preconditions are there. But, and I think that if the US were to lead, I think you'll find that the Canadians will follow, the Europeans will follow, the Australians will follow. Because I can tell you one thing as a Canadian, no Canadian political party wants to be seen to be the right, to the right of the US on issues like this, right? And so the US has an ability to lead, you know, as a, as a side interesting tidbit in my paper, I use the analogy of competitive sports a lot. I lean into basketball. Um, originally when I wrote it, I used soccer. I'm a, I'm a huge football or soccer fan. Um, uh, but I switched it to basketball precisely because I thought, well, you know, there isn't a, there is a global approach that can work. I really do think there is just like right now, um, countries are looking at coordinating on taxes, same idea, but that came about because the Biden administration sort of said enough is enough. We need to work and coordinate on minimum taxes. Otherwise people just gain the system. It's politically difficult for the Biden administration to do that for climate change. I do believe they would do it. I believe that if there was the political room to do it, they would step into it. But that political room doesn't exist if the business community is unified in what I think is a completely vacuous thesis that in 2021 we can rely on the free markets to like correct, you know, the largest market failure in history. And so really long way of answering it. I think the debate, it's the US business community needs to be, you know, that's where the debate needs to happen. Because I think that if you get to a point where you can actually split the community and say, listen, like what's being done right now is not even in the interest of people at BlackRock who are in their 20s and 30s, right, to kick the can down on the road on these issues. And that there's a large intergenerational issue that's being unaddressed. You do get to a point where you can start to actually create a debate that I think gives the politicians here room to move. And I think if they can move, I do think that there's a global approach that's possible. I like the idea of a carbon tax because it's simple. And I think with a complex problem like climate change, you need to keep the solution simple. Otherwise, you just get in a a muddle and you're not going to bring people with you. Um, But it's only simple to say it's actually very complex when um, in practice. So, for example, um, it's always important to work out what the unintended consequences of any interference in a complex system is. And there will clearly be um, consequences that are negative uh, uh, for people, and they will be unequally distributed. So, for example, many are concerned that um, if you raise the price of energy, it's the poorest in the rich countries and and the poor in the poor countries that that will be hit hardest. And so in order to get this through, these big political questions need to be dealt with satisfactorily. I would agree with that. I think, you know, I'm actually not that worried about challenges like that. And the reason I'll say that is that there's no shortage of good ideas to address that. I mean, I think there was uh, two years ago, uh, a huge number of economists, including 45 Nobel Prize winners, endorsed the idea publicly of a, of a price on carbon. And I think for that specific um, uh, endorsement, it was in, the idea behind it was very much openly around the idea that the carbon tax should be revenue neutral or in some way that the uh, proceeds of it should be distributed towards um, those who need it most. 
And so for them, actually, they may pay a little bit more at the pump, but then they're getting much more back in, you know, a set of other, um, you know, social programs. It could be things dedicated toward education. It could be just cash dividends. Uh, and of course, the richest would be the ones that'd be paying because they're going to pay the carbon tax just as much, um, you know, and other, and other sort of taxes probably around that, but, you know, not, um, not necessarily receive it back. And so in that sense, it's a progressive rather than a regressive tax. I don't think there's a shortage of ideas to do that. I think the problem is that right now, for the same reasons you can't increase taxes on wealth or any, or, you know, or marginal tax rates on the wealthy, which, you know, have been short, the I mean, lows have been in decades. And, you know, the economist Tom Piketty has written a lot about sort of the growth and inequality as, as you know, as partly as a result of that. You know, you kind of have a situation where um, the solutions are there. It's politically difficult to get them done. Um, and I think that's largely because, you know, I think that, that there's, I think that right now, the those who have power are sort of beholden to a set of fantasies that say that they can sort of keep, have their cake and eat it too. And so sustainable investing is a great idea uh, for them, you know, Davos and all of these gatherings of the world elite. They seem to always land on solutions that don't involve taxes and regulation. I get it. Nobody wants taxes and regulation, right? I mean, that's not something that anyone wishes. I'm a capitalist. I'm a former investment banker. It's not the kind of thing that, I, you know, we 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 run and and you know are desperate to see happen. But at some point in a competitive market, it's kind of like a competitive sport, right? Where you're playing and there's and there's dirty play, right? Dirty play is winning games. People are doing things that no one wants in the game, but it's 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 because the rules haven't been updated for decades and they've figured out ways to you know effectively score points and win games by by being unsportsmanlike, uh, you need referees, right? And capitalism has referees. There's you know, there's no such thing as a free market. That's an idiotic idea. Every single market has rules, right? I mean, the first lawyer you talk to will say, no, no, the market's a collection of rules. Those rules needs to be updated significantly, right? Not, the thing about a carbon tax is that the crazy thing is we're, we're only, we're discussing now that oh, we probably need one soon, but people knew that a decade ago, right? And, and all that was sort of seen is that I would argue a, a consensus that emerged in the 1980s that was sort of a Thatcher-Reagan consensus around the idea that free markets magically solve all problems. In some cases, of course, you know, deregulation makes sense, but it's been taken to an extreme where even post-financial crisis, we haven't seen the kind of regulation we would need, nor the change in narrative that like the free markets have got this figured out. And in 2021, you know, the solutions that we're bandying about, I mean, again, there's people who have won Nobel Prizes for saying we need a carbon tax. Um, there's nobody who said, even vaguely serious economists who's talking about ESG integration as a way to fight climate change, low carbon ETFs, you know, proxy fights against oil companies one by one. I mean, they know that these things don't work. You need to address a systemic crisis. You need systemic solutions. Those have to be led by government. Uh, it's interesting what you say about the, the, the free market, um, being rules-based, you know, I completely agree. And I think Thatcher and Reagan were, um, they, they were operating in a moment of time with with their own political pressures but i think the philosophies on which their doctrines were based um would not that didn't disagree with that like hayek or milton friedman i think all of these people they they don't see freedom as um as an antonym or you know they don't see freedom as a situation with no rules that's just chaos they see freedom very much i think as you describe it which is a rule based game and uh freedom is a principle whereby most of the rules should respect the integrity of freedom, but that some of them have to, you know, so I think Hayek in particular mentioned a pandemic as a situation where state intervention may be required. 
Um, so I don't think the free markets are necessarily, um, um, uh, what's the word, in opposition to the concept of, of intervention. Um, and the other thing I was thinking when you were speaking is that um, it's very easy to pontificate from a high, you know, uh, with a very well-paid job. Um, um, and it's much harder to do good on the ground. And to do good on the ground, you typically the make personal sacrifice and then you can get a real feel for well, what are the impacts of certain policies on actual people and so that's why i find your your bio interesting because you've been a venture capitalist and a private equity guy and a big institutional investor but you're also thinking about um afghan girls and the impact of you know the current situation on them right now and how to get to them and i think you need that bridge between lofty um, political ambitions and um you know what's actually happening to real people in order to like stay grounded and make sure that your policy ideas, um, you know, will play out the way you think they might in, in the real world. I, I agree with, with, I think I agree with everything you just said. I think that you could take an approach based on the power of markets and still, and still say, yes, but markets need rules and those rules need to be updated to, to serve where we are in 2021. And, and I, I'm not an expert on, you know, Thatcher, Reagan, historian, or, or even Milton Friedman. But what I know of all of them, and certainly Milton Friedman, was that they would probably agree with the carbon tax at this point, because, you know, it's fairly clear that um, that we need to do something and fast and that, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, you know, so time is of the essence. And I think right now what needs to happen is that business leaders who understand that we need to, to make serious changes and quickly um, need to rise above their own short-term interests. And that might mean that asset owners are the ones who start doing it, the clients of asset managers, or it is ex-CEOs or, you know, types of people who, you know, they're willing to stand up and say something that may not be in their own interests in the same way that, you know, Warren Buffett 10 years ago wrote, wrote an op-ed saying that, you know, he should be taxed more. Um, and so I think, I, you know, and I would also add, like, there's there's a lot that people can do even from the business side of things. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously there's, you know, you can run an NGO like I am, and of course people can support using a technology-based model to sort of support our work to grow that and, and impact more Afghan women. But even if you're sitting in a company and you have a specific role, there's a lot good that can be done. And I think there's a lot of room for CEOs to do better right by and and so i don't think that they that it's all lying when they go and they say they want to pursue the social good but i do think that there needs to be two things number one there needs to be more rigor around what's being done because if the incentives of the system are set up in a way that it's cheaper to market yourself as being sustainable than it is to actually make the long-term investments to be sustainable then we have a problem um, and again when capitalism is so short-term oriented that that it seems to be what's happening in a lot of cases uh, and while, while you hear a lot about ESG, but then somehow we're not making any progress on our social sort of challenges. Um, and I think the second thing, and then the most important thing is that as, as much as I'm a capitalist and spent most of my career in the private sector and, and you know, as a, as a fund manager and other things, I would also say that it's important we understand the limitations on what the system can provide, right? I mean, b businesses doing right by stakeholders, that's a great idea, but we can't rely on that. Um, just like we can't rely on a system that's built out of a series of transactions that are based on fiduciary duties and other things that are meant to maximize profit, and then look at that existing alongside a market failure where obviously it's cheaper to do lots of something that we need less of done. 
you know, any way you look at that system, it's going to produce suboptimal outcomes. And I think that right now, I think, you know, there's a real battle for the future of capitalism where I, I think that, um, and it doesn't just have to be younger people who are sort of saying, wait a second, you know, we're on the hook for this. We're capitalists, but it needs to look different. Uh, it's also, I think, a series of, of business leaders who uh, really understand um, the importance of, of saying, here's what business can do, the way it's set up, and there's a whole bunch of amazing things. But here's a limitation on what business can do unless we change the rules, which is just like an athlete on the field saying, listen, like at some point, I don't want to be playing in a game where, you know, the, someone punches the defender so they can go score a goal. Like, you know, we need a referee. And I think that that's the debate that really needs to happen now. And I hope that that kicks off sooner than later. Yeah. What What's next for you? Um, is is Rumi your, your, your sole focus? Rumi is my sole focus right now. Right now, the, the kind of impact that we can have scaling technology across millions of people uh, through their mobile phones and markets, like not just Afghanistan, actually also in North America, our other biggest growth areas are in North America, using some new tools we've built around mobile first micro learning. Uh, it, it's done extraordinarily well, especially in the pandemic. It's it, it's grown uh, very, very quickly and it's it scales very, very cheaply. So um, right now I think that there is sort of this step change um, or revolution we can drive in access to learning that is 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 truly exciting. Um, and because I, st I started out as a tech banker in Silicon Valley because I taught myself programming and actually did a bunch of internships and technology before ever deciding to try out finance. And then of course, doing it as a, as a banker in Silicon Valley. Um, and so now I, you know, looking at the tech, the technology, it's possible. We see so many tech trends that are extraordinarily exciting that affect their everyday lives. There aren't enough, I think that really, uh, square or zero in on how to improve humanity and use all that those tools and infrastructure to to truly address things like the education gap uh, and that's and that's really exciting for me and so that's that's kind of the focus in the near term especially on the situation in Afghanistan because you know the people there need all the help they can get and we work with some really really he heroic uh, women's rights campaigners that um, you know interfacing with them regularly makes me realize on some level the privilege that I have no matter what I'm doing just because I was you know, born and raised in North America and had access, you know, to pu great public education and other things that, that uh, if I'd been born there, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have ever gotten, you know, to ever see or touch. Yeah. Well, the very best of luck with it. It sounds incredibly worthwhile. And thanks very much for, for sparing your thoughts for Fun Shack. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a great discussion. You've been listening to the Fun Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.